Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, good afternoon, Chris. Um, welcome on board again. Uh, you were in London over the past week. Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to ask you about that. One is, how do you view the COVID situation over there? And, you know, how do the people of London really feel about it at this stage? And is it having much impact on their lives? And secondly, um, and I think very obviously in the current environment, uh, what do you think of the Boris situation and what is the general consensus over there about his behaviour in recent times? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I, as you know, spend a lot of time flitting between various locations on these islands, both London, Wales, and when I can, Dublin these days, that that becomes more difficult by the day, of course, as new restrictions come in. But I have spent the last week in London. The situation there is changing by the day, uh, both in terms of COVID and the people's reaction to the government that we have here in the UK. First of all, in terms of out and about in London, uh, compared to just a few weeks ago when I would have said it was almost as if COVID hadn't happened because things like mask wearing were virtually absent a few weeks ago. Uh, Everywhere was very crowded. Everything was feeling back to normal. Uh, That's changed dramatically just in the last few days. Uh, People are wearing masks on the tube. It's up to 90-something percent on my little straw poll looking around. It's quite clear that restaurant bookings are down. I got a restaurant last night in Covent Garden very easily. And at this time of year, that shouldn't be happening. One of the things that's the same as a few weeks ago, which might be about to change, is that every coffee shop, bar, restaurant has help wanted signs in the window. As things start to shut down again, then I think that uh, that, that might change. 
one of the, the ways in which people are talking about COVID is slightly different to earlier episodes, which is from the point of view of travel. The, the, the UK, like Ireland, I guess, has introduced testing restrictions for coming back into the country if you've been abroad for any reason. That has been widely described now by certainly people I speak to as a de facto travel ban, because people have worked out quite obviously, really, that if you are overseas and you get your coming back test and it comes back positive, what on earth do you do then? Do you spend the next two weeks in a hotel, if you can find one that will allow you to isolate, etc., etc.? So uh, a lot of people have cancelled travel plans. A lot of people are giving up on the idea of booking travel plans. So a combination of the, the, the two usual sectors are being hit by this latest wave, hospitality and travel. And I think the hit is going to be pretty bad to be honest. So there, there's much more nervousness about COVID. London's still pretty busy. There, you know, the, there are still people out and about in pubs, restaurants and clubs, but it's a lot more wary than it has been. And you are conscious that everybody where they are supposed to is wearing a mask. Indeed, I see a lot of people uh, in the street wearing masks, which which is very unusual for London. So I think, I think people are worried. Uh, relatedly, of course, we have the latest political shenanigans, which everybody is talking about not unexpectedly. We've had uh, reports of up to three parties. I don't know whether there have been any more. Three Christmas parties this time last year, which has led to one high-profile tearful resignation from a woman called Allegra Stratton that was on the airwaves this week. And she has joined that long list of people who, of, of what I suspect are quite decent people who have come into Boris Johnson's orbit and a bit like a black hole their lives and careers have been destroyed by their association with him and I know that in Ireland a lot of attention has been paid to this unlike a lot of other issues this one has cut through Um, that expression means has it resonated with the public and it most definitely has so all attention is now focused on two things actually where is the next scandal going to come from because one of the things that we've learned with Johnson is that they're they just come along all the time. They're regular. Um, so then there will be another one at some point. And will the Tory party withstand uh, another scandal associated with Johnson before getting rid of him? And the more near-term focus is the Shropshire by-election for next week. Now, you might remember a, a recent scandal which has faded into memory was Owen Paterson, the various ways in which he took money for lobbying. And he's no longer an MP. The by-election is next week. It's a safe seat, as it's called, uh, I think a 23,000 majority for the Conservatives. So it would be a really big deal if they lost that seat. But the, the size of the majority is as big a question as to whether or not they'll hold it. So there's still lots to come politically. I think the the scales have fallen from the eyes of the British electorate because the, the Johnson was always seen as somebody that had two attributes. Uh, one was that he was an optimist. People, when they were asked by pollsters, why do you vote for Johnson? It was his optimism as much as anything that attracted people. Understandably, people like optimists. The second attribute that you often heard men in particular make was that he's the sort of bloke I'd like to go down the pub with. On both those attributes now, I think the British public is changing their minds. Whether or not it amounts to anything you know, more profound than that, I don't know. But I do think he is one scandal away from uh, big, big trouble. And what replaces him? If he's replaced? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, there are lots of people within the Conservative uh, Parliamentary Party that would love to replace him. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, is often mentioned here as being a very popular 
traditional conservative chancellor. I don't know how he's managed to acquire that reputation because traditional conservative chancellors are people who like to cut taxes and cut public spending. And he uh, has his period in office as chancellor has been characterized by the exact opposite. He's put taxes up to their highest now, gosh, I think in seven decades. And uh, public expenditure, of course, thanks to COVID, this wasn't really his decision. Of course, he's running at all time highs. So the, the we one of those peculiar situations. The antithesis of a conservative chancellor has managed to acquire the reputation of being a conservative chancellor and is a very popular man in the party. The other name that's often mentioned in dispatches here is a woman called Liz Truss, who is now the foreign secretary. And she had quite nakedly has been, or quite literally, on manoeuvres, um, posing for pictures in, in ways that Margaret Thatcher used to, for example, taking the helm of a tank. Um, there was a famous photograph of Margaret Thatcher from many years ago in, in that pose. And it's quite clear that Truss is trying to, uh, if you like, ride the coattails of Margaret Thatcher to become a sort of a, a new age Margaret Thatcher or, or a Margaret Thatcher for the 21st century. And she is, when asked, the most popular person in the Conservative Party. When Conservative Party members are polled, who would you like to see? Who is the most popular person? This woman, Liz Truss, is often at the top. So those are the, the two names that are in the frame at the moment. But I suspect there would be plenty of others that fancy their chances. Not just people in the cabinet like Michael Gove, but the, the person that was in the runoff with Boris Johnson when Johnson won the leadership campaign, a guy called Jeremy Hunt. I suspect he'd fancy his chances as well. Um, but often... If there is a leadership contest in these situations, it's all often a dark horse that, that makes a late run. So, so we'll see. It'll be a bit of fun if and when it happens. So it's, 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 po it's possible, Chris, that Boris actually could surpass Theresa May in terms of the shortness of the tenure as prime minister. Well, how long was yeah. she? And that's a good question, actually, because he's been in office. It's the second anniversary of his, mm. of his tenure now. How long was she in office for? It wasn't much longer than that. I, I have an idea that... If he if he were to fall early in the new year, he would actually um, overtake Theresa May in that regard. Uh, one of the legacies of um, Boris has been Brexit, and um, on this side of the world, this side of the Irish Sea, um, it's an ongoing issue of significant controversy with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we've spoken before about the very positive impact that is having on the Northern Ireland economy both in terms of exports and, indeed, um, inward trade to the country. Um, free access to the UK single market, free access to the EU single market. Uh, but yet, the um, political complexion up there is very, very opposed to the Northern Ireland Protocol, and uh, Boris has certainly hopped on that. Do you, do you think there would be any change in the stance on the Northern Ireland Protocol and Brexit in general, you know, in the event of somebody like Liz Truss, for example, replacing Boris at some stage in the new year. One of that, the, that's very important from an Irish perspective. Yeah. One of the not very funny jokes that was circulating around Westminster this week is that the dead cat strategy that Doc Johnson has adopted many times, which is this notion that in order to deflect from the controversy that you're currently going with, you, you throw metaphorically a dead cat on the table. And the next dead cat was widely speculated, joked about this week, would be that, he, that an, an immediate triggering of Article 16 
just to get the Christmas parties off the table. That, that hasn't happened yet, but that's how cynical some people are getting over here. Because the news on Brexit is unrelentingly bad or poor. Uh, the, 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 the raw data, as you know, Jim, from a whole host of perspectives, the trade data, which is what Brexit at the end of the day, economically speaking, is mostly about. Britain's share of world trade, Britain's share of exports going to the EU, Britain's absolute amounts of exports going to the EU, they're all down. And there are all various papers being published almost on a daily basis now showing how in the early stages of Brexit, the tradable goods sector of the British economy is suffering and in some cases suffering quite badly. In the initial stages, it was all about fish and food products, and to a certain extent it still is, but it's it's now across the tradable goods sector that the bureaucracy that's been thrown up by Brexit, the paperwork that people have to do, the forms that they have to fill in, the checks that have to be done, are real barriers. One of the things that people, I think, in, in the Brexiteering wing of the Conservative Party, and, and more, more generally the Nigel Farages of this world, Because they inhabit a 19th century mentality when it comes to trade, when it comes to economics, they're very focused on, they were very focused on getting a free trade agreement with the European Union, um, which which they achieved just about at the death. And now they're focused on getting free trade agreements with countries like Australia and the, the much hoped for one with the United States, which shows no signs of turning up. The trade deals that they keep focusing on have one key characteristic, which is tariff free trade which in the 19th century was very, very important. And if you've got a 19th century mindset, it still is. But the truth is, in the 21st century, tariffs aren't that important. It's non-tariff barriers that trade experts will t- tell you about. It's the, the rules and regulations around trade, not the, the quotas or the tariffs that you put on things that, that actually determine how much trade goes where. And the non-tariff barriers are considerable, actually, in certain areas. So... Um, uh, it's it, it's proving to be exactly as the Remainers, Ramonas, whatever pejorative term you want to use, said. It's it's harming the British economy, and there's been uh, all sorts of different ways in which you could you could illustrate this. There's the, the the steel tariffs are coming off for the EU that the Americans put on under Donald Trump, but they're being left on for the UK, and they're connecting that to the discussions over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Surprise, surprise. Trade negotiations are brutal and they're brutally political as well. And people can throw in all sorts of different things into those negotiations. And here we have the Northern Ireland Protocol affecting the possibility of a a free trade agreement with the United States, steel tariffs in particular. And to give you an idea of the nuttiness of this administration when it comes to trade, when it comes to economics, a, a junior trade minister has threatened escalation of the tariff war with the United States over steel, saying that if, they, if you, and as said, if you don't drop your steel tariffs, we're going to put some more, because they've already got some tariffs on American bourbon and a couple of other products like that, and they're threatening to escalate. So just at the time that you're sabre-rattling uh, about the prospect of a trade war with the EU via the Northern Ireland Protocol being ditched, you're going to pick a fight with another big trading partner, partner the United States. Really smart, really intelligent, no, it's, it certainly isn't. So there, there, there have been one or two, well, one anyway, a prominent Brexiteer who's uh, expressed a little bit of buyer's remorse when it comes to all of this, but that's an exception. They're ideologically dug in. What I see the more uh, normal Brexiteer response is that something that we heard from Jacob Rees-Mogg a long time ago, that it's going to take 40 or 50 years before 
the results of Brexit are actually known, which of course is is is, is weaseling out of of taking responsibility for the harm that they have done to Britain. A couple of things I'd say about that, Chris, is that um, I absolutely detest American bourbon, so um, w- wouldn't worry me if we never saw a bottle of that in this country again. Second thing is that one thing I do enjoy and admire about Boris Johnson is his ability to really piss off the woke liber- or Twitterati in this country. Uh, they're, they're absolutely obsessed with him. It's brilliant. So um, I, I would miss that, okay? Um, I, I think we just lost a 1,000 listeners, Jim. I think we probably did, Chris. Um, well, I'll tell you, um, I want to talk to you about inflation because there's been a lot of further developments this week. But before I do that, uh, another notable event this week was the assumption of power in Germany by Olaf Scholz. Um, taking over from 16 years of Angela Merkel and a CDU-led governments, um, albeit uh, with you know minority parties like the SPD heavily involved over the period. But Schulz is going to be a really interesting character. Um, he was the mayor of the city-state of Hamburg, which is, I think, an incredibly um, important role in a German context. And um, more notably, he was the Minister for Finance under... Angela Merkel's last government. So, and for the first couple of years of his reign, he was pretty much um, more of a CDU than an SPD type um, Minister of Finance in the sense that, you know, he bought into the whole austerity notion that the Germans uh, so love. But then over the last couple of years, he has, he, he did an amazing about turn And he has been, you know, at the forefront of driving a massive fiscal expansion in Germany in response to the COVID crisis. And I have to say, I would admire him for that sort of pragmatism, because clearly in Germany and elsewhere around the world, that sort of fiscal response to COVID was and is absolutely essential. But he's now chancellor and um, takes over from, in my view, a leader that has been head and shoulders um, above all global leaders over the last number of years. And the competition is not very high in that regard, let it be said, or the bar is not very high. But, you know, Merkel has their big shoes to follow. But the more I see of Schultz and the more I read about him, uh, the more confident I am that, you know, he will be a good chancellor, that he will actually do more to sort of bring Europe together again um, than Merkel would have done over the last 16 years. And I'm not criticizing Merkel because I was a huge fan and I am a huge fan. But Schultz will have a very different perspective. And uh, I think it's a pretty positive perspective. What do you think? I think that you're describing grown up politics, which stands in stark contrast to how we began this podcast, talking about infantile politics. I'll come back to that in a minute. I think I share your admiration for Merkel, but she, she was. She wasn't the perfect politician, and not everything she did was good. I would criticise her a lot, Here, we, and here we're going to lose another thousand listeners, uh, is that her decision to abandon nuclear energy for Germany has caused enormous environmental damage, and that that, that means that Germany is still over-reliant on fossil fuels. I think my, my own particular, this is not a podcast about environmentalism, but, but I do think that uh, a lot of our future 
environmental future must include a more serious consideration of the nuclear option. But, 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 but Schultz does have a very strong environmental agenda. Yeah, and that, that's Hopefully, good. Yeah. There's clearly a grown-up adult debate going on in Germany about their fiscal laws, both internal and external. That's the, the balanced budget rules that they have. And I suspect that he will turn out to be the pragmatist that you suggested there. And that also has resonance for the debate in Europe about what fiscal rules will be put in place if and when this blasted pandemic is ever over. And of course, that will have relevance for all members of the EU, not least Ireland. And again, the suggestion is that he is going to be a pragmatist when it comes to those negotiations. But here we have a, a political system that has proper serious debates that in particular takes politics seriously. Now, this is a really important point because there was a wonderful article in last weekend's Financial Times by one of their best columnists, a guy called Janen Ganesh, in which he was remarking on the way in which politics is conducted in the United Kingdom in particular, but not just the UK. And I, he didn't contrast it with Germany, but I would. Politics is taken very seriously in Germany uh, for all sorts of reasons. First of all, it should be. Secondly, history. They are so conscious of their history of how politics and the wrong kind of politics can lead to catastrophe. It's also the case that all politics have consequences. And so it needs to be taken seriously because you are affecting people's lives either in catastrophic ways through things like wars or bad handlings of pandemics or in minor ways in passing the wrong tax laws or the wrong driving laws or whatever. Politics is very consequential. In Britain these days, particularly the ruling Conservative Party, the key to understand from your outside perspective, Jim, looking in, is that politics is not serious. And that's because the governing class or that elite that comprise the Conservative Party cabinet, people like Boris Johnson in particular, regard it as a game. The, Boris Johnson is, I think, something like a fourth cousin to the Queen six times removed. He's, he, he does have blue aristocratic blood running through his veins. And one of the things about that type of person in the UK, that type of aristocratic elite, whether they are actually um, have aristocratic ancestry or whether they are wannabe modern aristocrats, one of the key aspects of their behaviour is that you could, they must never, ever be seen to be a bore. And that's a very e English use of the word. And being a bore means usually in their world, taking something seriously, being intense about something, being passionate about something, taking something very seriously, that's a bore. So you combine that with his slightly superficial, in my view, philosophical education via his degree at Oxford, in which I suspect he was taught that nothing really matters, philosophically speaking. And you've got a worldview, a way of being, a, a lifestyle, if you like, a personal philosophy that everything, including politics, including running the country, is just a game. And I think that that explains a lot of his actions, a lot of his beliefs, and the way he goes about things. And it's also true of that class of people generally. And the, the sight of, of somebody laughing and giggling over the fact that uh, potentially an illegal Christmas party was held is a small example of what I'm talking about. These things um, it is deemed by these people are, are are just a game to be played without serious consequences. And of course, that's the bit that they get completely and utterly wrong, because politics, as the Germans show us, is a very serious game 
with all, always, often, very, very serious consequences. So when you're talking about the accession of, of Schultz to, to the chancellorship of Germany, uh, you couldn't have a, a, a more different, contrasting example of how politics is done in a sedate, calm, uh, negotiated, adult way to the absolute circus, three-ring circus that you have here in the UK at the moment. It, it couldn't be a bigger contrast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read a lot of books this year, but to me, the one that stands out is the book Why the Germans Do It Better by John Kempfner. Um, it's a superb exposition on, you know, why the Germans do it better. Uh, obviously not perfect in use. As you say, Merkel certainly wasn't perfect, uh, but relative to a lot of her peers, I think she was a hell of a lot more perfect and did provide leadership. So um, we, we'll, we'll possibly agree to differ on that one. Um, I I kind of adore at her altar, but it, it is interesting that we will have a nominal shift from the right to the left in Germany. And I think the the, the impact um, will be hardly noticeable. And I guess it does show you the maturity and the seriousness of um, German politics, as you were saying. The the other big story that we've we've got to talk about is what's happening on the inflation front. Uh, this afternoon, we got U.S. inflation for November up 0.8% on the month, 6.8% increase in prices year on year, which is close to a 40-year high. So those are incredible uh, statistics. And if you strip out volatile food and energy, core inflation is running at 4.9%. And over the next few months, I think we're going to see a couple of things happening. One is that the impact of higher oil and natural gas prices is likely to abate. And okay, I, one month is, t- is, is too short a period to call a change in something. But it is interesting that so far in December, oil prices are down 10%. Natural gas prices are down by 25.4%. So perhaps this energy impetus to headline inflation will start to fall out of the system as we move into 22. Uh, but the other thing that's likely to happen is that that core rate of inflation, um, the expectation is that it's going to go from 4.9% to peak probably at 5.5% in the first quarter of next year. Who knows? You know, trying to forecast and understand inflation, as we've discussed, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, but that sort of inflation profile um, is certainly one that will seriously worry the Federal Reserve, I would have thought. Yeah, it's the fastest rate of inflation, as you say, since 1982, which was the Paul Volcker era. He was um, boss of the Fed back then that, that essentially brought the 1970s inflation to an end. And we're going to get all, all sorts of renewed concerns about that debate, which you and I have rehearsed so many times on this podcast, Jim, about whether or not this is tra- transitory. And team transitory, I think, have been vanquished uh, completely now in terms of both the scale of the inflation problem that we've got and the length of time that it's taken. That said, of course, there are lots of things, the components of which you just spoke about, look as if they might be on the turn. And so we need to be very careful about getting hysterical about this inflation print, but it is horrible. Uh, what is really interesting is that the markets have taken it really on the chin so far, at least, and they're not uh, there's no great sell-off in equities. Bond markets haven't really reacted very strongly either. So it, that that's curious. If I think if you'd said earlier on in the year that uh, inflation, uh, a print in December, 
was going to be uh, the highest since 1982, uh, you'd have forecast equity markets a lot lower and bond yields, long-term interest rates, and indeed short-term interest rates, uh, a lot higher. So it's, it seems to me that um, we, we're going to have to revise our interest rate expectations everywhere, and not just in the United States. Throughout, if, the, if, if this persists, in, even in slightly attenuating form through the first half of next year, we're going to have to have higher interest rates in the States. They're going to yeah. have to move. It'll be it'll be really interesting next week to see the European Central Bank's perspective on that because um, everything we can detect from the ECB uh, to date would suggest they still believe in this transitory notion. And you know, Philip Lane, the chief economist, the Irishman, uh, would certainly be of that view. So I think next Thursday's ECB um, comments will be really. Um, interesting to listen to. Um, here in Ireland yesterday, we got November inflation, um, 5.3% year on year, the highest annual rate since June 2001. And one of the features of the dynamics of Irish prices over the last number of years is that the headline has been very, very low, you know, very close to zero on average over the last four or five years. Uh, but within that, what we've seen is a lot of inflation on the service side, uh, particularly in areas that are controlled by the public sector, but also um, in you know the rent sector, for example. But counteracting that was significant um, price compression on the goods side. Um, in November, service price inflation increased by 5.3% and goods price inflation increased by 5%. So in other words, inflation here now is coming through on most fronts, which is a concern. Uh, but you cannot escape the fact that energy is still having an inordinate impact on the year-on-year -year growth rates. Um, electricity prices are up by 20.9%. And indeed, the suggestion that the government is going to give a €100 Euro credit on every ESB bill in the country um, early in the new year. Um, gas prices are up 26.2%. Home heating oil is up 71.4%. Petrol, 26%. Diesel, 29.2%. Airline flights up by 64.8%. Um, so there's a lot of inflation feeding into the system through um, higher energy costs. And of course, the hope would be, as we've just said in the context of the States, you know, if energy prices do continue to moderate over the coming months, um, we will see those year-on-year -year growth rates falling sharply. But of course, um, COVID-19 and the Omicron and the restrictions that may be put in place, the further damage that may be done to supply chains, you know, could actually hamper any hopes we have in that regard. So that's is worth watching. The other interesting piece in the Irish inflation data yesterday was, and no surprises here because we've seen this trend um, evolve steadily over the last number of years, and that is private rents in the year to November. They're up by 8.1%. Um, and that is um, indicative of the ongoing crisis in the housing market. Is It is indicative of the abject failure of successive governments to actually stay on top of the housing crisis. And of course, one of the repercussions of that is what's happening on the political front. We had Irish Times opinion polls, an opinion poll out this morning showing that Sinn Féin has now jumped to 35 percent 
and Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are both on 20%. So the electorate is clearly saying we want a change of government in Ireland. And another interesting aspect of the poll, and in fact, the most interesting aspect, is that 50% of the under 35s are now pro Sinn Féin. And what do the under 35s have in common? Well, they are the people that are most exposed to the housing crisis at the moment, to spiraling house prices and spiraling rents. So we and we, we've said this so many times, the next general election in this country, probably in 2024, if the government survives that long, you know, will be um, determined. The result of that will be determined by what happens on the housing market. So it, it just it, it's, it's quite amazing that the abject failure to actually solve or do anything meaningful to solve the housing crisis is actually handing um, leadership of the country next time out to Sinn Féin. Yes, and there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge between now and the next general election, as you say, Jim. So uh, as Harold Macmillan famously said, events can get, get in the way of a lot of things, not least forecasts. But as you say, if the general election was held today, we'd have a Sinn Féin government and all that goes with it. And that's something I think that we should examine more closely uh, in another podcast. But the the housing thing is, as you and I have discussed so many times, uh, a global phenomenon. It's not just an Irish phenomenon. And the idea that there is a unique Irish solution to the housing crisis, I think it needs careful examination. Uh, I think its global roots have to be examined as well. Um, but whatever the solution is, that you're not going to get it in the next year or two. If, if there is an easy, if there are no easy answers, and there are certainly no quick answers either. So whatever your views about the housing market is, that I think that um, if, if that is the number one issue, then the, the result of the election is already decided. But then, at the risk of making a forecast, I'd say that Sinn Fein will find it just as difficult as everybody else around the world to solve the housing problem. It, it 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 has many roots, many causes, and of course it will. Yeah, you could well find that higher interest rates solve the ha- the house price problem. Uh, Larry Summers, the ex U.S. Treasury Secretary, who's been dead right in calling U.S. inflation, is now saying that the there's a very good chance that the only way the Fed is going to be able to cure this inflation problem is by actually causing a Paul Volcker style recession raise interest rates to the point that the US economy goes into recession and that that really is all it can do possibly to deal with this inflation problem and if that happens then uh, the whole world economy is going to be affected and that could have an impact on all house prices it may not have much of an impact on housing supply but you may be able to afford a house a little bit more than you were able to before with house prices coming down but if you've lost your job then of course you're back to square one and you still can't afford it at all, so this is it is it is very very complicated, uh, so, and I would be pessimistic about the ability of anybody to solve it. Given when, when I look at the UK, the United States, and, and other countries who have similar housing issues to Ireland, and anybody that says that there's a simple solution is in fact being a populist politician, in in my view. Yeah, but people are buying into this populism at the moment, so. Um... I, I think I think it's inevitable that Sinn Féin will lead the next government and um, it will be really interesting to see, you know, how they address the crisis. And um, I, I'd be pretty sceptical about their chances of doing so, just as I'm very sceptical about the chances of the current government of doing so. 
So it's 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 a perennial problem that's going to remain with us, unfortunately. Um, you mentioned Paul Volcker there, and uh, here's another plug for a book. But uh, another book I read over the last 12 months was the autobiography of Paul Volcker. And um, he describes his mindset and that whole period, you know, when he pushed the U.S. economy into recession to try and get a handle on the inflation situation. So for anybody interested in the precedent there, um, I would certainly recommend Volcker's uh, autobiography. Uh, I think he died this year, didn't he? Yes, he's died relatively yeah, recently. Relatively yes, recently, he, he lived yeah. to a ripe old age. Yeah, an amazing man, really. Okay, Chris, um, I think that's it. Uh, great to talk again. Um, have a good weekend, and um, we will um, break bread again next week, okay? Cheers, Jim. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.